Well, thank you, Ida. Thank you all. Good afternoon, just. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, as Ida said, to Luke chapter 19, we are going to be reading the story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, verses 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, his owners asked, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Well, it's great to worship together this morning. Just, just brilliant to, uh, to celebrate this day, to celebrate what the Lord has done for us. And today is Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday next Sunday. And this morning, I want us to go on a journey in the room and those watching online as well, to go on a journey back 2,000 years to the sights and the sounds of first century Jerusalem as we look at the events surrounding Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. Now, just for a bit of context by now, Jesus spent three years in the surrounding towns and villages. He's been teaching been healing the sick, the deaf, the blind, the mute, the lepers. He's delivered demon-possessed people. He's turned water into wine. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. And those are just some of the miracles that he has performed. He's calmed the storm. He's performed so many miracles that everybody knows the name Jesus. He's gained a huge following in the region. It's fair to say he's absolutely the talk of the town. And we read in Luke's account that Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it 
and bring it here. So let's now hear from uh, Bill Hodgson. He's the former National Director of Campus, Campus, Campus Crusade for Christ in Australia. And he's going to take us on a journey in this location in the Holy Land. Standing here on the eastern edge of the Mount of Olives Ridge, east is this way, which runs down to the Jordan Valley, down into the Rift Valley, and eventually to what we'd know as Jordan today. And to my west is the city of Jerusalem. Now from here, you can't quite see the city of Jerusalem. We're just approaching the ridge. But what you can see from here is you get a great view down the eastern approach to the top of the Mount of Olives to two locations that are mentioned particularly. And let me mention what those are. It's in section 128 of the Harmony, John 11, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. So you have this massive pilgrimage that flooded Jerusalem with quite a few hundred thousand people above its normal population. And this sea of people, this river of people is just kind of making its way up the different approaches to Jerusalem. And one of the main approaches, especially for people from the Galilee and across in, in Perea and other places in the valley, was to come down the Jordan Valley and come up through Jericho, up the Wadi Kelt, and make the ascent to the Mount of Olives. And then their final view would be the city of Jerusalem. Well, you can see where Bethany is from this mount. So as Jesus came up with the throng of people, his followers, and the growing crowd that followed him from Jericho and his ministry across the other side of the Jordan, as they came up the mountain, this crowd surged up and Jesus and his disciples did a little detour south in order to stay in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus at Bethany. It says then the next day, Jesus and his team, his disciples, they left Bethany and they started to come up that little ridge. And as they approached Bethphage, which is basically on the top of that hill just there. In fact, there's a church marking the spot today. That's where they picked up the, the colt, unridden colt of the donkey and Jesus manned the colt and made his approach to the Mount of Olives for this triumphal entry. So we're gonna make a move. We're gonna have a look at the view that Jesus would have seen, at least from that general aspect, as he approached the city on this triumphal entry. Amazing view. So as Jesus came riding in a colt, crested the Mount of Olives, and this is the view that stretched out. It says that the crowds that were with him mingled with the crowds that had heard he was on his way and were coming up the mountain from the temple. And at that point, you got this confluence of expectations, this massive crowd, as well as the other crowd, it's just the general pilgrims that are making their way. But something remarkable happened. The people's political aspirations, as they read into the, the kingdom of heaven and the king approaching, for them it was all political. It was about a saviour from oppression. And of course, it then records how people took palm branches and they laid their coats on the ground. They took palm branches and laid them down and started to sing Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord, King of David. We watched that all afternoon, couldn't we? It's really fascinating. Uh, I just think that's useful context for the scene and uh, what, what Jesus saw and, and all of the crowds saw um, as they approached Jerusalem. Now, up until now, Jesus has typically and often ordered those that are healed to not tell anybody. We have an example of healing two uh, blind men. And he said, do not tell anyone. He healed a leper and he said, don't tell anyone, just report it to the high priest. But 
don't tell anybody. There was this kind of keep it to yourself piece, but it still had huge crowds following him. But this is different. This is the Passover festival. The Passover festival is a national festival. It still is today. It's a national Jewish festival. It's a patriotic holiday celebrating God's deliverance of the Israelites from the slavery in Egypt and their journey towards freedom and the promised land, a land of their own. So there, as Bill said, hundreds of thousands of people now descending upon Jerusalem at this time. So as Jesus mounts the colt, this is no don't tell anybody moment. This is no keep it to yourself moment. This is a very public parade. And one commentator has suggested that this Sunday could just as much be called Parade Sunday. And I remember growing up as a child at, at, and going to church on, on Palm Sunday and um, there was always a parade on Palm Sunday and the, the back doors of the church would fly open and we'd all parade around the church and back into the church with our palm crosses remembering this parade. And for me, even as a 12-year-old kid, I was caught up in the celebration and the excitement of it because it was just one week away from the Easter egg hunt. So that was really something to be celebrating. But it was a sense of parade and a sense of joy and celebration. And the time has now come for Jesus' mission to be fulfilled on earth. And he wants everybody to know about it. So Jesus enters Jerusalem from the east side of the city. And interestingly, similarly, at a similar time as this, there is another parade happening on the west side of the city. See, Pontius Pilate was the governor of the region. His responsibility was really to oversee the, the, the income tax coming in, the political affairs, and also to quash any rebellion that might happen in the city. And Jerusalem at this time is an occupied city. So if there was ever going to be a rebellion, it would be now. You've got thousands of Jews descending on Jerusalem, celebrating freedom in occupied territory with Roman soldiers under Roman rule. This was an absolute powder keg of an environment. So each spring, Pilate would travel into Jerusalem to be in the city during Passover, to be there as an authority, and he'd bring thousands of soldiers with him to quash any potential rebellion. And historical records show that Pilate entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover on a white stallion. Just imagine this, surrounded by troops bearing aloft the Roman standard. The parade was designed to really convey power and glory and to remind people of the might of Rome. And Pilate's entry into Jerusalem, it was both a visual and a real audible display of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armour, helmets, weapons, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glistening on metal and gold. This was a display of power, the sounds of marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the beating of drums. So on the west side of the city, we have the parade of Pilate, the display of an empire, a kingdom whose standards were violence, oppression, Pride, greed, immorality, and ungodliness. And on the east side of the city, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth rides into Jerusalem, 
not on a horse which symbolises power, but on a young unbroken colt which symbolises peace. And here we have two kingdoms colliding. We have the kingdom of the world represented by Pilate and the Roman Empire in pride and worldly splendour. And we have the kingdom of God entering in humility, in love and in sacrifice. Why an unridden cult? Why did Jesus orchestrate the unridden cult? Well, Old Testament law stipulated that all sacrifices had to be perfect, unblemished. And here we see the Lamb of God, unblemished and without sin, riding on an unridden colt, entering Jerusalem as a sacrificial lamb. Even Jesus' choice of transport here was prophetic, it was symbolic, it was completely orchestrated. And this is no political rebellion that Jesus is leading to overthrow Roman occupation. This is a spiritual battle unfolding between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem not as a worldly warrior, but as the only one able to defeat the works of Satan through his sacrifice on a Roman cross and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. You know, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to deliver the whole of mankind from the devil and from sin and from death. He's riding into Jerusalem to deliver you and me from the power of the devil of sin and death. Yes, this is a royal parade. This is the king of kings. This is the lord of lords. But his kingdom is not a worldly kingdom subduing nations with violence and oppression. It's a spiritual kingdom coming to defeat man's greatest enemies, sin, the devil, and death through Jesus' death and resurrection. And then in the middle of this parade, amidst the shouts of joy and the celebration and the hosanna to the son of David, the crowd chanting Psalm 118, they lay down their cloaks in submission. They're literally rolling out the red carpet to Jesus. In the middle of the joy and the celebration, we read of a great paradox, a, a contradiction. The king begins to weep. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. You know, perhaps there's an awkwardness that descends on the crowd at this point as they see Jesus crying, tears streaming down his weathered face as he looks over Jerusalem. And these are not tears of joy as would be befitting of the occasion. They're tears of sadness. They're tears of grief. And as Jesus looks across Jerusalem, he knows what's awaiting him. He knows the agony of the cross. He knows the betrayal of his disciples. He knows the rejection from his father 
He knows the pain that he will suffer. But he's not weeping here about his own suffering. Jesus weeps for the people of Jerusalem as he predicts the siege of Jerusalem that began on the 14th of April in 70 AD, as we heard John speak of last week. The Roman Emperor Titus at this time surrounded Jerusalem with four legions of Roman soldiers and destroyed the temple and the Jews sheltering in it. This is what Jesus is weeping of. And the historian Josephus described the scene as Roman soldiers entered the temple. This is what Josephus wrote of it. As the soldiers neared the sanctuary, they urged the men in front of them to throw in more firebrands. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Jesus here is weeping about human suffering. If only you knew what would bring you peace, Jesus cries. And this is Jesus' cry today. And this is our cry today. We weep when we see the suffering of others at the hands of soldiers. We see the suffering in Ukraine. We weep about that. We feel sad. We feel helpless. It hurts to hear of the suffering of others. We pray for peace. We pray for those who are suffering so horrifically. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the churches in Ukraine and in Russia, that God would give them strength and courage to be ambassadors for the gospel of peace. And we pray for justice and we know that God will judge. And we pray to an end to war and suffering. It's fair to say that human suffering is one of the most common causes and reasons why people reject the idea of a loving God. How can a God of love allow such suffering? Well, here we see in the Gospels that God is not a distant God, indifferent about human suffering. Jesus here enters right into Jerusalem to endure the most brutal form of human torture that any empire could invent to crush its subjects. The word excruciating is derived from the Latin excrucum, meaning the overwhelmingly intense pain of the cross. And as we head towards Good Friday, we remember that Jesus suffered physically, he suffered spiritually, he suffered emotionally in ways that we can't even imagine. The carpenter riding into Jerusalem, being celebrated by the crowds, would soon be standing in front of a crowd, calling for his death. This is human suffering. So any person, I think, who claims that God does not understand human suffering has simply not read the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And these same words that Jesus spoke as he looked over the city of Jerusalem, they resonate down through the ages. If you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? Jesus longs for all people to know what will bring them true peace. Unfortunately, the reality of this world is that there will be wars and there will be rumours of wars. In fact, the Bible speaks of an increase in wickedness. But in the middle of the turmoil of this world, 
in the middle of the troubles that we see, the peace that Jesus longs for us is a, a spiritual peace between us and the Father. You see, Jesus weeps here because he knows that the Jews are seeking political peace with Rome. They're wanting a king that will free them from the occupation of Rome. But what they really need is peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. It's a peace that comes from the kingdom of God, not a peace that comes from this world. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. I think when we hear the word peace, and imagine what you think of when you hear the word peace now, we think of rest, we think of being at ease, we think of freedom from disturbance. The dictionary describes peace as a quiet and calm state of mind. We know the Hebrew word shalom, it means harmony, it means wholeness, completeness, it means welfare, it means tranquility, and all these are good definitions. But above all, peace means agreement between two parties. It means agreement between us and God. And it can only be achieved by believing in Jesus. This peace with God, it cannot be achieved through our own acts and what we do. It can only be achieved through faith in Jesus. Faith in the carpenter riding into Nazareth. So here's a question on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being no peace at all and 10 being completely at peace. On the peaceometer for you, how would you rate yourself this morning, this afternoon? How would you rate your level of peace with God? Have you received Jesus as your saviour? Have you acknowledged him as Lord? Or are you following your own way, Lord of your own empire? Are there things in your life that you need to ask God for forgiveness for? Have you put your faith in Jesus alone or are you relying on your own good deeds to achieve that peace with God? You know, we might not always experience peace externally in our lives. We can have conflict in the workplace. We can have conflict in our family. And even with friends, we can have conflict. We might have conflicts at home and conflicts in our finances, stresses and strains and temptations and trials in life, which externally don't feel give us peace. But despite all of this, we can have peace with God, the most important peace. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus himself is our peace, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, of hostility. And if you've put your faith in Jesus today, there's no more hostility between you and God. It's good news. Jesus has removed that hostility. Now, of course, we still need to confess our sins. We still need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and show us and convict us. But the wall of hostility has been destroyed, and we can enjoy on that peaceometer complete peace with God. So, where are you on the scale, one to ten? with peace with God? Well, if you believe in Jesus, you can boldly declare, you can boldly approach his throne of grace this afternoon and receive his peace. You have been justified through faith 
and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in just a few days after Palm Sunday, Jesus hung on the cross and he said the words, it is finished. The hostility between you and God is finished. So as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem from the east, the perfect sacrificial lamb of God riding on a colt of peace, his mission is to reconcile all people to God and to the Father, to remove that dividing wall of hostility and to enable his peace to rule and to reign in your heart. I want to conclude with a description of peace with God from the Christian Outreach Ministry gotquestions.org. And I encourage you to listen to these words. It might help to close your eyes as I read these words out and allow these truths that you're about to hear to really minister to you this morning. And perhaps for you this morning, you know you need peace with God. I keep saying morning, this afternoon. But whether you're watching online or you're in the room this afternoon, you just know you need peace with God. Maybe Jesus' words to you this afternoon are, if only you knew what would give you peace. Well, hear these words now. Respond to God by asking for his peace. So let's listen now to peace with God. Before we can understand what it means to have peace with God, we must recognise that human beings in our natural state are enemies of God. Because we inherited a sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are born with a disposition to please ourselves and be our own gods. That rebellious nature sets us at odds with our perfect creator. We cannot create peace with God because our best efforts on our best day are nothing but filthy rags compared to his holiness. So in our sinful state, we cannot be reconciled. We cannot have peace with God. God took the initiative in pursuing peace with us by sending his son to earth. Jesus lived a perfect life. His crucifixion paid for the sins of all who would trust in him. And his resurrection guarantees our justification before God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he is the one who gives us peace with God. That's why the message of salvation in Christ is called the Gospel of Peace. God's pleasure and peace rest upon those who receive God's Son by faith. I'm going to say that again, just receive those truths. God's pleasure and peace rest upon those who receive God's Son by faith. Peace with God means that our sin debt has been paid and God sees us as righteous. We are no longer enemies, but beloved children. Peace with God means our consciences are cleared. The overwhelming weight of guilt that plagued us, all is gone, placed on Jesus on the cross. The shame that we rightly felt for the wicked deeds we'd done was carried by Jesus. 
And God the Father adopts us as his own children and invites us to come boldly before the throne of grace to commune with him and ask for what we need. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord believes in his heart that Jesus is the only way to God and is willing to surrender to him can have peace with God. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths that we've heard of your peace. We thank you as today we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem the crowd celebrating, the Prince of Peace coming to take the sins of the world, to defeat the enemy of our souls, to defeat death and to give us peace. We thank you, Father, that today we remember. And Jesus, we pray that we would receive your peace today. We would receive the victory of the cross that you won for us, that we would know what gives us peace and that we would receive your peace this morning and your forgiveness and your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be ambassadors of your peace, to be ambassadors of the gospel of peace, to reach out to those around us who do not know your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.